0: Jill Cook here with a hard-won but exciting guest, Lorimer Moseley. He really needs no introduction, but Lorimer is a clinical and research physiotherapist who completed his PhD in 2002. Since then, he's had a peripatetic research life and has finally settled at the University of South Australia as the inaugural Chair in Physiotherapy and Professor of Clinical Neurosciences. He's an NHMRC Principal Research Fellow. Lorimer's research group investigates the role of the brain and mind in chronic pain. Pain is a huge problem. It affects 20% of the population and costs Western societies as much as diabetes and cancer combined. His research group does experiments in humans, both healthy volunteers and people in pain, as well as clinical intervention studies and clinical trials of treatments for defined chronic pain conditions. We're really keen to apply his knowledge to the athletic population. With me today is Ebony Rio, an ardent student of pain in the athlete. Ebony is well-placed to extract the best answers from Lorimer about pain. Welcome, Ebony and Lorimer, and thanks, Ebony. Hi, Lorimer.
1: We've got some great questions here from our tender nerds and from some of our Twitter nerds. The first one is, can you explain the difference between nociception and pain? Uh,
2: Nociception, I I would define nociception as activity in The primary nociceptors, C fibres and A delta fibres that have high thresholds for activation and activity in the neurons to which they project. So spinal nociceptors and cortical nociceptive networks. Pain is is not about activity in neurons. Uh, So pain is a conscious experience and that's where it's more difficult to define, uh, but it's more universally understood because everyone nearly everyone, has an understanding of what it is like to feel pain. So pain is the thing that you feel. Nociception is one contributor to that and involves activity in neurons with high thresholds.
1: Great. Okay, the second question, which follows on from that, there's definitely the use of local anaesthetic or a procedure that actually denovates um, tendon tissue. Would you comment um, for the listeners, please, on on what your feelings are about taking away that sort of potential nociceptive feedback from tendon?
2: That's a, it's a, really, it's a really sort of broad question, isn't it? I think that if I could um, massage the question a bit to say, when might it be appropriate in my eyes as someone who doesn't inject tendons but someone who's interested in nociception and pain when would it be appropriate to do that and i guess the answer to that question then would be if that's a propagating an errant signal of some description if if that is contributing to pain and it's concluded that the pain is not helpful in any way and not informative in any way, then uh, I can see real merit in blocking the danger input. Um, It becomes far more complex when we try to interpret the effects of that blocking, Um, and we have to bear in mind that the protective capacity that's inbuilt to that tendon is then removed.
1: How might you go about, or how might a clinician go about determining whether or not that pain was no longer a helpful warning sign in something like a tendon, where it can be a persistent pain state anyway?
2: Okay, that's that's a really uh, that's a question that I find very difficult to answer, and I think that anyone who's interested in tendinopathy pain will also find it difficult because we we don't have a clear understanding of why. People have tendinopathy pain sometimes and uh, it's, it's beyond my set of resources to define when, when we decide it's helpful and when it's not, if we don't really understand it very well. And I guess, I mean, uh, I don't want to tell you and Jill and all you tendon experts to suck eggs, but it does seem to me that there, there really is a, a variable relationship between the state of the tendon tissue and the pain. And that is both a challenge, but also a, a red rag to a, to a bull for any explorer physiological explorer to try and understand that. And I understand that that's, you know, you guys are on the cutting edge of that. But, uh, I, you know, asking the, the clinician to make that decision based on clinical tools, and I would probably answer that question then in within the context of any question where someone has pain but it's not immediately clear that they have ongoing tissue danger. And in that situation, we need to employ very, uh, we need to be very strict in employing our clinical reasoning protocols, I guess, and our, uh, our interpretation of evidence and our interpretation of individually specific evidence. Uh, but... But as I listen to myself there, Ebony, I think that's such a dissatisfying answer. (laughs) Uh, But I have no better answer for you.
1: You you touched on a point about there being a disconnect between um, tissue change and pain, and that's definitely true of tendons, and tendons might have been a little slower to come on board or, or not than some of the other musculoskeletal tissues. So one of our Twitter questions is, If there's a disconnect between structural change and pain, is the brain being smart or stupid?
2: (laughs) Uh, uh, That's that's a really interesting angle. Um, And I would tend to argue that the brain is nearly always being smart, uh, but the information that the brain is considering when it produces pain is out of our sight at the moment. So it's a challenge for us to find why. And I always fall back on an understanding of pain as a, as a, as a protective mechanism, just like I would describe motor outputs could be protective mechanisms or, or sympathetic nervous system outputs could be protective mechanisms. But but pain is the only thing that captures consciousness and, and therefore motivates us to, to full organism behavior. You know, so to actually go and do something to you know, volitionally behave differently, and I I think the brain will do that if it's if there are cues that are telling it it's it's in it's in the interest of the organism to not do something, then it will make that thing hurt. So whether it's being smart or stupid, I, if I could twist that around and say is it being helpful or unhelpful, uh, then I think that might be an easier question to answer and and in the case of a pristine tendon that is painful it might be easier to to, or, or we might sit more comfortably with the conclusion that it's not helpful and it will be very difficult to work out well why then is the brain trying to protect it and that's the difficult question I guess that's the question that I find really both challenging but also intriguing clinically. And scientifically. Threats, I think threats to the body, perceived threats to the body hide in very difficult-to-spot places.
1: Definitely. Um, This is probably my favourite question. What are the top three most helpful and most harmful things you've heard a clinician say to someone with pain? So either a chronic pain sufferer or just someone that has pain. Ah,
2: Yeah, that's a... um, think of the top three, I can think of a class of comments that I think are unhelpful and and uh, they can do different things. For example, those sort of statements that clinicians make uh, to imply you're lucky things are not worse there. So, uh, you know, you're lucky you're not in a wheelchair or uh, you have a look at the MRI and let's face it, you know, 90% of clinicians have no idea what they're looking at on an MRI, but they still Take the plunge and say, "Oh, gee, no wonder it's sore in there." And and that <laughs> class of comment, I would. I think we should put all our comments through the filter of what what message do we give with respect to danger, and is that the message that we want to give? Uh, so, uh, even uh, even maybe not what we say, but the way that we say it uh, is the person in front of us going to. Is their brain going to process that information that we're giving them uh, to stick it on the on the side of the ledger that says things are dangerous in there, in your body, things are in danger, or on the side of the ledger that says things are less so in danger. Uh, so the, the stupid things are, you know, it, well, the things that I think are unhelpful that clinicians say along those lines of making it seem more dangerous, but also... I think uh, also when we give a sense of illegitimacy in our viewpoint, or so that's badly worded, but if we if we say something that implies to the patient that we don't think their pain is real, and it's very easy to do that, even little things like this, where and I bet many people have said you know would would remember themselves saying this or hearing people say this, things like. Well, I know that for you, your pain is very real, and that might be said with really good intention. But what it implies is that for everyone else, it's not real. Uh, and I like to teach, when I when I run courses on this or to the students that I work with, uh, we like to emphasise that uh, you you just call the pain the pain. You don't talk about your perception of pain or. Uh, I know you're perceiving this as very real, I would just say, I know it is very real. I know your pain is horrible, uh, those sorts of things. Not, I know your pain feels horrible because that implies that it's not actually horrible, it just feels it. So all that sort of illegitimacy statements, uh, I would put in the bad things. And, and the good things to say, I really love it when clinicians are able to f- find that really fine line between being honest and frank and also being caring and valuing and respectful and i don't know if there's really a a verbatim for that so much as a an attitude that comes through our language or something like that Um, but but we can certainly communicate i know this is going beyond your question but I feel very strongly about the way that we communicate to patients, to people in pain, and I think we can be really intentional about the way we communicate. And when we are intentional and hold up the mirror and almost listen to ourselves, then I think we, we can give very good, very good messages uh, and we don't have to imply danger in things that we say. Unless, of course, it's a very good thing to imply. For example, someone's about to pick up a heavy weight and you know that they've got a spinal fracture it would be sensible to say that's probably going to do you damage you know I'm not saying we should never do that but uh, I I think we should be intentional about the way we communicate
1: yeah definitely that actually leads beautifully into the next question so you've been fantastic at educating us about de-threatening and um one of the things about tendons is that de-threatening pain during loading definitely helps people get better and it changes their perception of tissue damage. So an example is that we see volleyballers who have severe patella tendon pain for years, but they play and train three times a week. It's very much a culture of the sport to just play with knee pain. So the first question from one of the Twitter nerds is, does de-threatening pain during loading have a positive central effect?
2: Fabulous stuff, Ebony. Uh, it should. I mean, I don't. I don't know. You probably know the data on that. Um, but you know, it sounds like, from what you said, it, it does. But I would certainly predict that it should, uh, because volleyballers presumably are as human as everyone else, and uh, <laughs> the <laughs> the the pain is pain is a centrally generated con- uh, consciousness, I believe, and. Uh, I don't know if there is anything else from that actually, but um, it should have a positive effect and it, would, it should have a positive effect throughout the neuraxis, so through, throughout the nervous system. If the, I like to think of the brain always weighing up how accurate it thinks the spinal cord is in its danger message that's traveling up into the brain. As though, the, as though the brain is saying, well, thanks, spinal cord, that's an in, intriguing judgment there. In actual fact, I have a lot more information available to me and I've just learned from this physiotherapist or physician I really trust uh, and I'm convinced in the belly of my nervous system that this loading is not actually threatening body tissue. So, spinal cord, in response to that, I wish you now to be inhibited. And that's descending inhibition, and that's that's really well studied. Perhaps not in volleyball and and tendon pain, but it's certainly well studied uh, in humans as well as animals. And uh, there's very good evidence that if you de-threaten anything, you can you can interrupt nociceptive input, and the converse is is also true. If you hyper-threaten input, you can actually produce inflammation in the tissues via peptidergic inflammation, which is uh, thought to be activation of C-fibers at their proximal end because there's sufficient descending facilitation. So it's not just an end result that we mess with when we de-threaten uh, a task, or in this case loading, that we, we mess with the entire system. And we're, we're only here touching on the nervous system. So... Uh, I would apply the same principle to the immune system. If if your your immune controller believes that you're under systemic threat, uh, then it will protect you. And we know that if we de-threaten environments or hyper-threaten environments, we we have a response in the in the profile of pro and anti-inflammatory cytokines. We know we do the same thing in the adrenal system. So this is not just about consciousness or the nervous system, but they're the two systems that uh, certainly I'm the most comfortable dealing with. I think the others are getting a bit more difficult for me, but uh, the principles seem to apply across the board.
1: So that actually leads in really nicely to the next question. Uh, Why are painful exercises like eccentrics um, sometimes effective? So, do you think the effect might be central?
2: I remember being at a conference, Ebony. Uh, I can't remember where it was, but I went to a very compelling and impressive lecture uh, by Jill Cook. And at the end of that lecture, I stood up and asked her that
1: very question um,
2: because I so didn't you know had the
1: answer. So you verbatim.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so and and I I didn't. I find that an interesting thing, and I, I still don't know the answer to that question. But um, if I was to postulate on it, if the uh, if the the pain of the eccentric exercise is important in the effect, and that was the message that I got, not not that I think there's any there's likely to be evidence of a causative relationship but but an association between if you do the exercises and they're painful you're more likely to get better is am i understanding that correctly ebony
1: yeah essentially yes that's one of the um sort of progressions is that um to reach a certain level of pain and then the exercises progress so that's definitely a goal of that um type of exercise
2: Uh Uh uh-huh i i would then say well i I don't, I don't know how the, the pain itself could be, uh, it doesn't make sense to my understanding of pain that that could be having a, a physiological f- effect because I see pain as the very end result of a process. But I can see that uh, exposure to a situation that is considered dangerous, that we, our evidence for that is that it hurts, uh, and then there's no major repercussions of that then perhaps the brain decides, well, actually, uh, it's, things are not as dangerous as I thought they were, and therefore it, it reduces uh, the likelihood or the intensity of the pain that, that occurs. So I can, I can imagine that there is an exposure-type effect going on, but I would also be very open to the possibility that whatever is done at the tendon level, at the systemic level, at the, at the nervous system level, at, throughout the biology, whatever is done uh, to a critical level that coincides with pain might have a range of effects at a tissue level, at a at a synaptic level, at all sorts of levels. So um, I really have no idea what the answer to that question is, but I think there's a whole, whole range of possibilities that include... Shifts in in central mechanisms.
1: That could link back. The exposure could link back to our volleyballers as well, Lorimer. In terms of you know no catastrophic event from playing, and it sort of starts to normalise that type of loading for them.
2: Yeah, I'd say that would be right. It'd be interesting to see if you have data or someone has data about what happens to tendon pain in a team of volleyballers when one of their teammates snaps their patella tendon?
1: Well, interestingly, it's really rare to snap your patella tendon. It, we normally only see it with some really um, systemic conditions like, um, Jill, help me out here, air loss, yes. is that yours? Yes. yes. Um, so it's really rare. So, again, they're they're probably quite happy to get on with it because they – probably haven't seen it unlike an Achilles where it's a little more common in um different sports so my next question Lorimer again from um the audience does the brain explain contralateral tendon damage after unilateral loading and the second part is then contralateral improvement in tendon after unilateral surgery
2: I don't think so um I I think it, I think brain-based mechanisms could contribute to those phenomena, but the the you know Occam's razor would suggest look for the most simple explanation and uh, the most simple explanation for contralateral tendon damage. If it's at the mirror site, the mirror tendon, for unilateral loading is immune mechanisms within the spinal cord um, and that's... That's reasonably well established, I think. Certainly, uh, the idea of inflammation happening at the mirror site for a, uh, an inflammatory or a nociceptive event—that's very well established—and that that will actually happen uh, most of the time. We just don't detect it um, because we don't—it's not sufficient to to cause a, a spontaneous pain or a, a visible infl- inflammatory effect, but. If we were to assess someone with a say an ankle sprain, uh, we would see areas of punctate hypersensitivity on the other side. So allodynia, and hyperalgesia on, on the mirror site on the other side, and that's quite a normal effect driven by immune, neural, and immune interactions within the spinal cord. Um, so I would say that would be the most the most obvious explanation for contralateral tendon damage after unilateral loading unless uh, both tendons are damaged uh independent of loading and i guess that's always possible uh, independent of the of the obvious loading stressor I mean, people have lives as well i imagine but the contralateral improvement in tendon after unilateral surgery that that's not as straightforward, forward i don't think um I guess one might wonder whether it would be related to resolution of the uh, peripheral sensitization associated with the initial problem. So peripheral sensitization will uh, usually incur a, a mirror effect via this neuroimmune interaction in the spinal cord. Um, and I guess improvement could coincide with resolution of that problem. Uh, but there would also be other um, more general effects that, that might contribute to that one, you know, a shift in, in mechanical loading and properties, uh, general health, blood flow, all that sort of stuff, immune profile. Um, so probably a, the the contralateral damage is an easier one to answer than the contralateral improvement.
1: Excellent. The next question, Laura, what pain management intervention are you most excited about?
2: <laughs> um, well, I mean. I, I've decided that I decided this some time ago, but I'm now deciding to voice my view on this matter. That I'm not I'm not that excited about pain management interventions at all, um, because I'm more excited about pain rehabilitation, pain treatment, because I think that's a that's a a viable and appropriate goal now on the basis of what we know about pain that that. Management is good, but it's not very exciting. You know, I think that it's what's far more exciting is the evidence that people, even with really chronic, cruddy pain, can improve. Their pain can improve, and the evidence for that's pretty strong, I reckon. So, if I was, am I allowed to change that question slightly to say what pain (laughs) treatments? It is like, yep. well, I, I, I'm probably as excited uh, now as I've ever been just about the, the impact of giving people understanding about, about pain. Uh, so without sounding too boring, I think the idea of explaining pain and being being very strategic about that process and uh, getting buy-in from the entire clinical coaching life coaching management work uh community on that on that idea that pain will occur if your brain thinks your body is under threat and it will be reduced if your brain thinks your body is under less threat that that principle of operating i haven't seen any evidence that goes against that yet and I think that people are getting better and better at communicating this to people in pain and, and when they understand it, their, their pain reduces, it's not, I mean, it's not a quick, quick fix. There are some, you know, if, if I, if my head was more in the nociception space, there are some really interesting developments in, uh, pharmacological techniques to reduce activation of nociceptors, um, but I don't understand them well enough to be fully excited about them. And at the same time, I think that's nociception. Nice it's not pain. And I get more excited about pain. So the, the simplest answer to the question is I'm still really excited about the idea of, of changing what people think about pain because it seems to change their pain.
1: So explain pain. Is that a sneaky plug?
2: <laughs> uh, oh, it, it might have been an unintentional one. I'm very open to the reality that we can't remove bias from what we what we do. And when we, in situations like this, there's probably a sneaky little. If I sell another book of Explained Pain, I'll get another coffee money. That'd be great, but it wasn't intentional. <laughs>
1: Lorimer, what will low back pain management look like in 100 years?
2: Wow, I wish I knew that. Um, Well, it will certainly not have me involved in it. Um, (laughs) What will the treatment – I'm going to turn that around. What will the treatment of low back pain look like in in 100 years? I think that um, it will – I really have no idea, but it will look very different to now in my view, and I think it will probably – I hope will be far less driven by the the stakeholders in the problem and more driven by the evidence and the and the science underpinning the evidence but I really got no idea what do you think it'll look like
1: I agree very different and and potentially you know much less hands on which you know may not be a bad thing
2: yeah, I, I do wonder if we'll have, if we really have physiotherapists and uh, chiropractors and osteopaths and psychologists. I wonder if by then we'll have uh, pain advisors or, or maybe lifestyle advisors or something like that. I think that certainly in chronic pain stuff, I'm not physiophilic. Like, I am a physiotherapist, obviously, but I'd. I think anyone has the resources to do most of what's required and then we just need to call on experts in particular fields every now and then in my view. So it'd be great to be able to see that. It's a great question because I'd love to be able to find out what it it looks like Um, and it will have to reflect the fact that all all of us are running out of money and, and chronic back pain is costing us bucket loads and the evidence isn't all that positive on most of the treatments that we do for people. But as well as that, there's whole communities who make a lot of money out of back pain. There's powerful political forces to do with back pain. It's a really interesting question. We should run a week long discussion <laughs> on this. Over lots of Cabernet Sauvignon.
0: I'm going to step in here and say thanks so much for your time, Lorimer. Um, insightful for our listeners and. We hope we can book you again in a year's time uh, for another BJSM podcast.